fantastic <laughs> this evening. Wow, what an interesting sec- section of scripture to have uh, read uh, to us earlier. And one, of course, that makes us think it contains so much which challenges us, particularly when we think about how wealthy we really are. I know some of us will plead poverty. Um, all teenagers plead poverty. There's absolutely no way they've got enough money to uh, cover all the expenses. But it's an interesting thing when we consider and compare the situation that we find ourselves in. Jesus said, For judgment I have come into the world that those who do not see may see. What an interesting verse that is. Jesus has come, brought judgment that those who do not see may see. And of course, there are many of us um, who are able to understand what it means as Jesus, through the power of the Holy Spirit, works in our hearts and lives. And things we never saw before, suddenly clarity is given to us and suddenly we'll be able uh, to see clearly. So I went to a secondary school. Uh, It was called Bullmush. I don't know why I'm telling you all these details. It was a big school, about one and a half thousand Uh, kids in it and it was more like a prison camp quite frankly it was the only way that you could ever keep track of uh, of uh, of that lot it did have a big high fence around it just I'm not sure if that was to keep people in or out but one doesn't ask all these questions it was a big school life wasn't always easy and for the very small number of us who were Christians it was really not easy and there was a group of us uh, that tried to have what was called a Christian Union meeting and we met and we used to have to endure all sorts of things being said to us. Now, every morning in that school, there took place what was called assembly. And in England, to this day, by law, every public school has to have an act of Christian worship in it. Now, isn't that incredible to this day? The problem is most schools have no Christian teachers who are able to present the gospel in any way. So what they do is they look for the pastor of the local church, usually the evangelical church, because they're prepared to come in and face uh, the abuse from the 1,500 kids in the school to come in and to speak. And it's a great opportunity. And that was one of the things that upset me, I guess, the most coming here was the fact that I was told you can't come into the school. If you do, you never, ever talk about Jesus. You never talk about the gospel. You can't uh, open the Bible and talk to kids, whereas uh, in school, when uh, my predecessor at this church, Chris Crocker, he said, Sim, I can't believe it. The school's been on to me just down the road from the church that he is pastoring. And they said, will you come in like your predecessor did and speak to the children? And so he said, well, when? Well, they said every day, because he had that opportunity to be able to do it. And so you discover that things are very, very different. But it's a a problem. Um, Some schools, you have people that talk about Buddhism and uh, New Ageism, because the teachers are confused as to what this Christian thing is about. Is it just being good people? Whatever it is, and so on. Now, a friend of mine, an evangelist in the UK, by the name of Roger Carswell, was asked to speak at, again, another big inner-city secondary school. And he stood up before about 1,500 children, and he read Luke chapter 16, verses 9 to 31, that Randy has read to us this morning. And as he was coming to the end of the section of Scripture that he had been reading um, to these children, he heard one of the teachers who was on the the stage behind him say, I never knew that was in the Bible. Do you know what? There's lots of things that people don't know are in the Bible, isn't there? 
There's many things that speak very personally to us and people have absolutely no idea they're in the Bible. Sometimes we hear people talk about uh, things in life and they may even quote the Bible and they don't realize that they've quoted the Bible. The Lord's curse is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the home of the righteous, Proverbs 3.33. Listen to this one from Revelation 3.14-17. To, to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, these are the words of the Amen, the faithful and the true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You say I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. So they don't realize the situation that they're in. I've mentioned Barry, my friend before, who uh, owns and runs a company called Ho Seasons Holidays in England, in Britain. Uh, Barry is not short of a bob or two. He's a very wealthy man. His company turns over a hundred million pounds. That's nearly 200 million dollars i was out with him on one occasion and his mobile phone rang and barry says sorry who's that what's your name and it's a man from the inland revenue the tax authorities and he says he says mr spedding I i'm just phoning to remind you that your tax return is due by the end of the month and if you don't send it in on time there's a hundred pound penalty and then i hear barry say to him what do you mean a hundred pound penalty? He said, do you think I care about a hundred pounds? And it was interesting the way how one man, a hundred pounds is worth a lot of money. And to another man, it, it, it's absolutely worthless. Peanuts. It doesn't mean anything. Now, some Christians believe that uh, the section of scripture that we have here in Luke 16 is a true story. In fact, this section of Scripture is sometimes used to support the Catholic doctrine of what we call purgatory, which is that there's a place in between heaven and hell that you can end up in. And if your relatives pay enough money to the Catholic Church, you can do a bit of a shift. Or if people pray for you, you can be taken from one to the other. And so this section of Scripture is one that people use to try and support that. But however hard uh, you read this section of Scripture, however many gymnastics, theologically speaking, you do, it doesn't say that. In fact, it says the opposite. In fact, it says very clearly, we've got to be careful here as we begin to understand what is spoken of. Now, other uh, Christians maintain that these verses are just a parable, a story that Jesus told to make a point. But regardless of uh, what view or opinion you take, the fact is it doesn't really matter. What we need to do is to listen carefully to see what Jesus, because Jesus is speaking here, we need to listen to what he has to say. We need to listen to the points that he is making. And we need to understand the implications of those points in our lives very, very carefully. So regardless of all of the Lord's uh, parables were stories uh, that were meaningful to his listeners because they contained events uh, that actually happened. What I can say to you is that the account that we have read together is an account of contrasts. There are a number of things that are being contrasted together and perhaps the greatest of them, maybe the second greatest, is talking about rich and poor. 
And that's a theme that worries many of us. And we're perhaps looking at our neighbor and thinking, wow, I wish I could have a car like that guy's got or a house like they've got uh, and so on. And we fail to have that contrast between somebody who's earning a dollar a day and they've got to feed themselves and their family and then they see what we have or we see what we have to live on. So the first comparison that we're going to talk about this evening is poverty and wealth. The two men in the account that we have read lived very, very different lives. The rich man lives in a villa. So if you can try and imagine for a moment uh, the driveway going up to this villa. Uh, In England you'd say, oh, I could get into top gear up the driveway, okay? Now that means for those of you who know what a a, a standard or or a manual shift is, you can get into fifth gear on the drive. Now that's impressive because most driveways or laneways You know, you you can park the car on it. That's it. Okay? But with Barry, you could get into fifth gear going up the driveway, and it was a fabulous view. Beautifully laid out lawns and manicured gardens. And it was all done for effect because he wanted people to see what he had. And so the villa, you can imagine, was perhaps like that. And you're going up this driveway, and there's beautiful trees. And as you get closer to the house, you see pillars in front of you. And everything speaks of wealth. Everything speaks of a man who has been successful. Somebody who has achieved perhaps everything that they have ever wanted to achieve in life. You go past the boating lake or the fishing lake, and there it is, the house opens up before you. And as you enter the house, there are servants to care for you. Uh, refreshments are brought on silver trays and somebody takes your coat or your cloak or washes your feet in uh, Middle Eastern times and says, is there anything I can get you? Is there anything you need? The master says, you can have it all because you're his guest and I'm here to provide that for you. And you'd have great memories of that visit. The rich man in the story that we have before us enjoyed his lifestyle. He enjoyed his house. And from the scripture, we can see that he had everything except any appreciation or relationship with God. And apparently, from the story, he was absolutely satisfied. But there was one thing that really irked him. There was one thing that was embarrassing for him. There was one thing he couldn't stand. What was it? Anybody from the story tell me? The beggar. He's lying in front of the gateway. Everybody who comes to see this rich man has to step over him. And it's a sorry sight. What are we told about him? The dogs came up and licked the wounds and the sores on him. That sounds horrible, doesn't it? He was so poor that he's just lying there. And, 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 a, and a dog comes and, and it doesn't bear thinking about. And, and he's looking for the crumbs that fall from the rich man's table. And that's all he gets. Because this beggar has come and lies outside the gates covered in horrible sores and whenever the rich man felt unwell and he called the doctor 
the doctor would have to step over the, the poor beggar as well to see the rich man. Can you imagine what sort of a doctor was that? It was an embarrassment for him. The beggar was so hungry that he craved the crumbs that fell from the rich man's table. He was so thirsty that he craved the water that he heard flowing in the fountain, in the grounds. He was so raggedly clothed that he dreamed of the purple clothing that the rich man wore. Why purple? Because it was the most expensive color to have made. It came from, I think, a conch shell off the island of Cyprus, and you needed 10,000 of these shells to dye one small shirt purple. So you can imagine what a robe would cost. And he's just lying there in rags. It's important that we set the scene on this because we begin to see very clearly the lesson that Jesus is teaching us here. But despite all of his poverty, the poor man had something that the rich man did not have. The poor man knew God. In fact, the beggar's name, Lazarus, means, in God I trust. And I'm lying there, and the dogs are licking the sores. But in God I trust. There's no doubt that Lazarus was known to God and was converted and was committed to God. He was saved through faith. In fact, we can look at it another way. The only thing Lazarus had was his relationship with God. He had absolutely nothing else. And Lazarus, from the story, was satisfied with God. And so the first question we ask this evening is, do you know God in that way? If you had absolutely nothing else except your relationship with God, would you be satisfied? Now that's a very, very tough question. It's a tough question for all of us, myself included. Have you come to personal faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? In other words, by that I mean not just knowing about Jesus Christ, not just knowing about God, but knowing Jesus personally in your life as your Savior. It's fine as we spoke of this morning. Many people say I'm a Christian and Christ is not the center of their lives. Are you satisfied with knowing God? Now, I'm going to ask the second question. Which of these two men are you most like? Compared with so many people, we in Canada are rich. Whilst there are some people in this country who are desperately poor, usually because they've got themselves involved with alcohol or drugs, and they're so desperate to feed the habits that they've developed that they never leave enough money to buy food and they have nowhere to live. But in Canada, most of us have food. Most of us have 
housing. Most of us have clothes. Most of us, by worldly standards, would be described as wealthy. So the question is actually much deeper. What does knowing Jesus mean to you? Does Christ, does knowing Christ mean anything to you? Does he mean anything to you? Is he the most important part of your life? These are real questions. If everything except the Lord were taken from you, would you be content? And friends, there are people in different countries in the world who when it is discovered that they are believers, that they are Christians, that they are people who have a close relationship with God, then everything's taken. The family doesn't want to have anything to do with them. Perhaps their life is taken. And we prayed for the persecuted church. And as my friend Lee was referring in that sense, there are more countries where persecution is stronger now than perhaps possibly at any time in the history of the world. But would you be content? I've told you before of the story of, of uh, a friend I knew in, in Poland. So he's a taxi driver and he takes these guys in the back of his cab and he gives them a copy of the scriptures from underneath his, the front seat in the, in the car. And then they say, actually, we're, we're going to change our location. And they say, take us to the Stasi headquarters. Now that meant, he knew exactly what it meant. And when they get there, Tadeusz Tawinski is taken out and three days later, after being treated incredibly badly for one thing, knowing Jesus, he comes back home to find that his daughter has been removed from medical school, his flat has been confiscated from him, and he's in dormitory accommodation with his wife and his family. Everything was taken from him simply because he knew the Lord Jesus and couldn't help but share the good news of salvation with those around us. So the first contrast was between being rich and being poor. Whilst the rich man was physically rich, he was in absolute poverty, spiritually speaking. Now we're going to talk about the death of these two men. Because they died different deaths. Now today we've uh, had some news about a birth in our fellowship. And that always brings excitement. I think we had a round of applause. Isn't that lovely? Because this is a baby that has been born and, 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 is, and, and is breathing and is doing well. And we see in that the potential of life. We see in that little girl the potential of somebody to grow up, to know and to love the Lord Jesus and to serve him and to proclaim the gospel. And that brings joy to our hearts. And so we rejoice with Connor and Sadie. In the birth. Now we haven't spoken about a death today, but birth and death are pretty common experiences to us all, and they unite rich and poor alike. Hebrews tells us that it is appointed for men to die once. Hebrews nine, verse twenty-seven. You can imagine it. The rich man is sat in his balcony and he's looking out over his estate. He can see the boating lake or the fishing lake, and he sees the driveway going down. And then he sees two servants running up the driveway, and he's thinking to himself, what's going on? There's something urgent about them. What is it that they have to say? And as they come closer, they shout out, Sir, the beggar at the, de at the gate is dead. Are you sure? Yes, we kicked him. 
He's a horrible sight. The sores are terrible. But he's dead. And the rich man thinks to himself, at last, I've got rid of that eyesore. I've got rid of that filthy beggar at the gate. A smile creeps across his face. And he says again, are you sure he's dead? Oh, yes, sir. And the rich man replies, good. Now go and get rid of the body as soon as possible. No marker to commemorate the place. Out of sight, out of mind. The beggar's body was worthless in both life and death as far as the rich man is concerned. Then Jesus went on and told of the rich man's demise, the rich man's death. Now we don't have all the details, but we could certainly quite legitimately begin to imagine them because we're told he's rich and so on. How did he die? Well, again, we're not told the details. Was he murdered because of a business dispute? Somebody came up and stuck a knife in his back. Or did he die, and I say this graciously and gently, from overconsumption? That's a nice way of saying, did he eat and drink too much? Eating and drinking too much can kill you. Perhaps that's how he died. He was rich, he had everything he wanted. Maybe that was it. Or perhaps he just died of heart failure. As I say, we don't know the details. And it doesn't really matter. You see, death comes in many ways. But the news of this wretch man's death would have spread like wildfire. It always does with rich people. You discover that the newspaper puts the details in. This rich man has died. I remember reading of uh, the account of a British businessman who he and his family had gone to Australia and they'd taken a flight on a, um, uh, one of those water planes that, that lands and takes off on, on water. And they'd spent a vast sum of money on this holiday. And the plane crashed and they all died. And when the man's estate was realized, he'd left £176 million to Oxfam, the big uh, charity that does stuff in the world. They were all dead. All his relatives had gone on this holiday and they had died. You see, death comes in many ways and some of us, it's a surprise. How quickly it can come. We're not expecting it. But the news of this rich man's death would have spread like wildfire. Have you heard? The guy up at the big house, he's dead. People would be thinking to themselves, I wonder who's going to inherit that lot. His funeral's tomorrow. Everybody would have known the details and perhaps the streets were being lined by people, relatives, who in his life had shown no real interest in him, but would now be intrigued by the news and they would make their way to the funeral. Perhaps people were saying things like, well, he was a good man, really. It was like the way... That when a rich man dies, they say, oh, he's a good man, really. It suggests there was a problem somewhere. He gave to the temple authorities. He was very generous. He paid for the renovation of the market square. It's even named after him. These are things that you could imagine. Nobody would remember how he had ignored the beggar at the gate. 
But friends, it's our attitude to others that is the proof of our attitude to God. The rich man evidently loved neither God nor man. He had to leave all his worldly possessions. He could take nothing with him. Just as a side point here, there is one thing that we can take to heaven with us. Some of you are going, this particular moment. It's our children. We have the responsibility to share the gospel with them, to encourage them, to come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that should give us the impetus to be able to encourage them further. Because we want to bring them to heaven with us. And so we share the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. We live in a way which demonstrates our faith in Jesus. We live in a way which shows the love that we should have for those around us. And we do this because the Bible encourages God, wants us to do this. God works in families and it is indeed to encourage them. And in the finest of cemeteries, the man's body is lowered into the ground. And eventually, perhaps a tombstone is laid over the place where he's buried. And maybe the words read something like this. Here lies the body of a rich man. But notice that it is only the body that lies there. Notice from the scriptures that we have read, it is only the body that lies there. Notice also that his soul has gone elsewhere. Paul prayed in 1 Thessalonians 5.23 that spirit, soul and body be preserved blameless. You and I both know that each of us is more than just a body. That part which eventually decays and dies, but we are spirit and soul and we will go on eternally in either heaven or hell. You and I both know that each of us is more than just a body. The part that just decays. And now this evening we close by considering the contrast between the different eternities of these two men. For the poor beggar, for Lazarus, the one in God who trusts, death was a sweet moment of relief and release. One moment his body is in torment, the dog comes up and licks his wounds, and he's hungry, and he's thirsty. And the next moment he's in paradise. He is translated to heaven. And in fact, we're told that the angels carry his body away. And that reminds us that no one can go to heaven on his or her own efforts. Do you see that? He's taken to a place of no more suffering, no more sin, no more sorrow, no more separation, no more disease, no more death. What a blessing for this man. Poor by the world's standards but rich because of his walk with God. Friends, heaven is a real place, a real experience. And for those who have trusted in Jesus Christ to take away their sin, heaven becomes home. 
Because when we come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, our origin changes. We are no longer of this world. Our origin is now firmly fixed in heaven already the moment we come to faith in Jesus. And because of that, it means that our home is heaven. If our origin is in the world, our home is not heaven. But how different was eternity for the rich man? His life of luxury and leisure was very short-lived compared to the fate that awaited him at his death. Jesus once said how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. Luke 18, 24. The riches of this man were now of no use to him. Despite all his wealth, he had been poverty-stricken because he was utterly lost. Jesus said of him here in this section of Scripture that we have read together, that Randy read for us, he said, the rich man also died and in hell. This is Jesus speaking. Now before anyone is condemned to the torments of hell, that person will have pushed aside all the obstacles that God has laid in our path to attract our attention. He or she would have ignored the prayers of friends and family, Christian leaflets, booklets, posters, the word of God, his or her own conscience, and especially the fact of a crucified, now risen Christ who lovingly longs that each one should turn to him. All that is pushed aside. And in this story, we're told that the rich man began at last to pray. He asked for mercy. He prayed that Lazarus, the beggar, would bring him just a drop of cold water to cool his tongue. Why did he ask for Lazarus to come? Perhaps because the rich man still thought of Lazarus as a nobody, somebody of no consequence. Surely God could spare that beggar to come and cool my tongue. But friends, everyone who is in heaven is there because they are precious to God. Because they're known to God. Because they have been saved through the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ that was shed for them. The rich man did eventually pray for mercy and his prayer was sincere and earnest. But what was wrong with his prayer? It was too late. His opportunity was gone. Sin left unforgiven has literally grave consequences. If only he'd prayed five minutes before his death, instead of afterward. God's judgment is both fair and final. So the reply came back from Abraham, Son, remember? The rich man was called a son because he was of the line of Abraham. And as such, he should have known the commandments. And he would have been taught the scriptures at the synagogue. He should have known. The obstacles were placed in front of him. He truly was a son, but he ignored his heritage. 
And now it's a strange and mysterious work of God to remind people of their past. Now, if you've ever been driving along and suddenly you look in the rearview mirror and there's a blue and red light flashing behind you, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I suspect a few of us have had that experience, okay? And the minute you see those lights, what does your mind start to do for you? What, 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 what goes through your... Again, I, perhaps I mustn't ask for, for anybody to explain it. But I'll tell you what happened to mine. The first thing you do is you start thinking, right, am I going too fast? And so you look at the speedometer, no, I'm not going too fast. And then you start to think, well, what else could it be? And you're trying to think of all the different... Did I not indicate at that turning back there? Maybe that back light is still not working. The brake light has failed. What is it? And you're trying to remember all the things that are going on. You're thinking to yourself, what was it? When God bids us to remember, and he does this, the memories can be painful. The voice from heaven explained to the rich man that it was impossible for anyone to pass from heaven to hell. Not that anyone would want to. And none can ever pass from hell to heaven. There's no mention of purgatory here or anywhere else in the scriptures for that matter. Only a final fixed destination, a place of either bliss or banishment. A place of heaven or a place of hell. That's it. And suddenly as the rich man began to remember, he thought of those that he had influenced, his five brothers. You see, whether an individual chooses to receive or to reject Christ, his decision often affects others. Your family, your children your neighbors. Think about it. The rich man's brothers had stepped over Lazarus to see their rich brother. In life, the brothers had ignored Lazarus. Why would they take any notice of Lazarus now? But the situation was desperate. Friends, God has revealed his love to us. All day, every day, he reveals his love to us. We live, we breathe, we see creation around us. And we know deep down in our hearts that there is a God and that he has made all of this. It doesn't matter who you ask if they're prepared to think and to talk openly. His love is shown all around us, but it is us who chooses to ignore him. It's not for me. I'm sure Randy could tell us a few stories of, of, uh, of those as they're out evangelizing. But so frenzied was this man that he pleaded, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent, he says. People today, in their droves, argue that it is a lack of evidence that prevents people from believing. However, I've got to say to you that the evidence that we have is convincing. Christ did die. He did live. He did die. He did rise again. This is a fact of history, both biblical and secular. It is not that people cannot believe, but it is that they will not believe. Matthew 12, 39 to 40, Jesus said that it was an evil and adulterous generation that seeks after signs, but that his resurrection from the dead 
would be the only sign given. That's what Jesus said. Abraham replied in a very similar way, saying, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded through one rising from the dead. The rich man was silenced because Jesus died and rose again. But many still not believe. This evening, please do not leave your prayer of repentance till after you die. Because if you do, it will be too late. In March 1984, now I probably understand this much more than many of you, but you'll have heard of the IRA, the Irish, um, I, Irish Republican Army. And, and throughout a period of around 20 years, there was absolute carnage in Northern Ireland and parts of England as the battle between the Republic of Ireland and the province of Ulster took place. And in March 1984, William McConnell, the deputy governor of the Mays Prison in Northern Ireland, which was where most of the Republican terrorists had been held, was shot dead outside of his home. His family saw everything. It was terrible as he was leaving for work one morning. Now, three weeks before his murder, he had written a letter expressing a premonition of death. He knew it was coming. And he concluded his letter by saying this. He said, finally, let no one be alarmed as to my eternal security. In March 1966, I committed my life, my talents, my work, and my actions to Almighty God in sure and certain knowledge that however slight my hold on him may have been during my life, his promises are sure and his hold on me is complete. And then he said this, nothing can separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. A small boy <coughs> dying of cancer turned to his mum in the last few hours of his life and said, Mum, Jesus can make a deathbed softer than any downy pillow ever can. Friends, you need to come to Jesus. Repent of your sin. Call out to him for salvation. And in all the history of the world, not one person has been turned away when they called to Jesus for salvation. Not one. And you don't have to be afraid of anything because he loves you and he's died for you. That's the gospel. That's what it is to know Jesus. 
That's the joy that it brings. And you can have that release now and that joy now by turning to Him, by calling to Him. Friends, the knowledge that our sin has been forgiven and that we have peace with God through His dear Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, will transform your life. But it'll transform your death completely. Call to Him tonight.